Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Megan, it's a pleasure to have you returning to UC San Diego. I think it was nine years ago that we met previously and you had just been selected for the astronaut program to train and now you have actually served on a mission, the final, final servicing of the Hubble Space Telescope. So it's a pleasure having you here. Thank, Thank you, you for coming back. Thanks very much. Um, it's, it's great to be back. I recall during our previous conversation that uh, one of the things that was very exciting to you was sitting in the final interview board, a room maybe 12, 15 people of the most preeminent NASA personnel at the time. Um, and, your, and your statement to me was something to the effect like, right, these people are going to choose me? <laughs> now... They chose you, and you are among them. How does that feel? What kind of encouragement does that build in you? And also, what kind of challenges does that throw down for you? Um, it, it does feel really good to have finally achieved that thing that I set out to achieve, to actually fly in space, to be part of a crew, to be on a space shuttle mission, um, and to have it go um, as well as it did, and to be successful with our, our mission objectives. It feels wonderful. It's, it's very satisfying, and uh, you know, it was sort of a long time in coming. Um, it doesn't do away with the feeling, though, of I can't believe I'm still, I'm, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe they chose me to do this thing. It's, it's still, that, that feeling doesn't go away. Now, your husband is also an astronaut, he I is. understand. Mm-hmm. And I guess you could say it's a, that's a match made in the heavens. So literally, something, something, I imagine the phrase, honey, I'm home, takes on a different meaning sometimes. Um, that must work out very well, having such closely aligned interests and work. Can you comment on that? It does work out very well. Um, we understand one another's jobs very well. And so, you know, when you need to talk about work and get something off your mind, then it's great to be able to open up to one another and, and realize that, you know, you both understand what exactly what you're talking about. Um, it's also great that he understands, we understand each other's need to travel and, and do the different things that we have to do. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's great fun to see him up there when he's on his mission. He taught me a lot about what it's actually like to live in space. When he came back, he, he flew the first time before I did. And I think it's just really fun to share that adventure, although we're not there at the same time. You know, we do get to share a lot of the same experiences, which is, which is pretty unique. And so I imagine if if you have children someday, you're, you'll be building the master, the master race, <laughs> these extraordinary, extraordinary people. I don't know. Uh, I, you know, our, our children could just go off on their own and, and do, do whatever they want to do, you know, maybe be a musician or an artist or something that's different. That's true. Um, and speaking of ch- children, my, I asked my 12-year-old daughter if she would have a question for you. And she asked, what is it like being a woman in a somewhat male-dominated or what is perceived as a male-dominated profession? And she actually wanted to know, how was it? How was it working in the male-dominated setting, or quote-unquote male-dominated setting, of actually being on board the STS? Well, we still have, I would say, around 20% women in the astronaut office, which I think is is pretty indicative of the number of women you have in a lot of the sciences that we draw from. So it's representative of the number of people that are applying for the job. I wish it was a lot higher. I I wish we had more women um, coming up, you know, through the sciences and engineering uh, fields into the astronaut office. I think that would be great. So that's my first answer, as I hope 
little girls see this and think, wow, she looks like she's having a lot of fun. That looks like a neat job. I want to do something like that. And then maybe that encourages your daughter or other young women to pursue science and engineering uh, as a career. Um, but as for how it was for me, I've grown up in, in sort of traditionally male-dominated fields in aerospace engineering and engineering in general. Um, so you get used to working in that environment. And really, the, the guys that I get to work with are great guys. You know, they treat me just like they treat everybody else, no, no differences. And we spent really two years together training, working together. And, and one of the first things we did as a crew was um, we went out on a, uh, on a Knowles trip, the National um, Outdoor Leadership School. And uh, we, we did a, about a 10-day course in the wilderness in Alaska where we were camping uh, together and kayaking from point to point. So we had to do our route planning together and we had to take turns kind of leading the group and, and figuring out how you get a bunch of type A personalities you know, to work together as a team to, to accomplish a goal. And so that was great training for us and it was a great bonding experience as well. We really sort of came together as a group and, and I think we all feel you know, like family with one another. And so um, while it was you know, one, one girl and, and six guys up there for, for 13 days it really you know it was really like being on a camping trip with your family it was a lot of fun interesting that's a object lesson for i think for uh, a lot of our culture i think in society is um, working together as a team and putting aside what are perceived or imposed differences and uh but we, we can't do the great things that we want to do fly people in space um you know, do these tremendous repairs to a telescope that's in space. We can't do that as individuals. We do that only as a team because it, it really requires not just the, the seven team members that are in space, but the hundreds of people um, that are on the ground that are making all that happen. It really is a, it's a huge team. You don't, you don't do this on your own. No, not at all. Um, if, if that middle school-age girl asked you um, what she should do to give herself the best chances of perhaps becoming an astronaut or, or just to be a success... And you are a you're a model of success, I believe. What would you say? What would you suggest to her? I think you have to pursue what you love to do. What is what's fun? What's interesting to you? Um, and don't be afraid to be curious and to ask those questions. But I think the 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 main point is to find out what it is that you love to do and and pursue that and pursue excellence in that. Because if you try to pick something that you don't love. Um, and try to be really good at it, you're not going to have that passion that drives you to excel. And so it's, it's finding out that thing that makes you spark, that's interesting to you, that you're willing to put in the long hours and, and pursue excellence that's going to lead to success for you. In retrospect, and you obviously found something you loved and you pursued it doggedly, assiduously. In retrospect, how or what elements of your education at two University of California campuses contribute to your preparation or perhaps success at becoming an astronaut? I think the, the things that I, that I, the lessons that I took beyond just sort of the solid foundation in science and engineering that you learn in the classroom, the lessons that I took from UCLA and UC San Diego, from Scripps, are those lessons in teamwork, um, in solving practical problems, you know, the, getting, getting a hands-on experience, problem solving. Um, at UCLA, I had an experience like that in an independent study program. And then at Scripps, the, the experience of going out to sea, um, working with the team to get all of the equipment together, to deploy the instruments, to take data. Um, and then I had other experiences where I was helping other graduate students do their own research that had nothing to do with mine. You know, they needed help. They needed that team approach to collecting data. And so getting, getting involved in those types of things were really the, um, you know, a, a great lesson for me, uh, something that I took with me on to, to NASA and, 
and um, you know, just keep learning from the people that you work with as a team. That's very interesting. Um, I, this is kind of a similar question, but was there, could you recall anything in particular from your experiences at Scripps or maybe the UCN General that translated directly to your training? Maybe there was an operational or a duty or, or something you did or... Or is it really, once you get to training, a whole new universe of experiences? Well, I think there are some general parallels that you can draw. People often ask me, well, how did an oceanographer end up you know, going into space? And I think that the similarities that I see have to do with the fact that, first of all, it's all about exploration. That's sort of the, the thematic similarity, if you will. Um, but the practical similarities have to do with, you know, when you're doing research at sea, we're not any better suited to survive underwater than we are to survive in space. And so we use technology to explore the sea um, in one, one level or another. And so when you're, when you're out on a ship, you are taking every piece of equipment that you need with you. If something breaks, you have to be able to fix it because you're not going to go all the way back to port just to get some little piece of equipment. And those kinds of very practical things are similar to living in space. And so I, I see that parallel between using technology to do the exploration and sort of having to be, um, having to have a lot of different skills in order to make the project work when you're in a remote location. There are some very similar aspects, I think, between seagoing exploration and space-going exploration. Previously, we had discussed your education, and not just your education, but your experiences. And I remember you saying that well, it wasn't just being good at school, but um, doing well in school, but um, taking in all, live your life and have a lot of experiences that you can take with you. What... Um, in retrospect, what, if anything, do you think was most influential in your, in your experience? Maybe it was your education or something else that contributed to be, being selected and success as an astronaut? You know, that's a hard question to, to answer what, what a committee saw, you know, when they interviewed me that, that made them decide to take a chance on me and, and hire me for the astronaut office. I don't know what that is, but... I think that, uh, and I've never been on the, the selection board for a new class, and so I don't know how that process goes, but I think in general you are looking at the whole person. You're not looking for one specific skill, you're looking for um, you know, somebody that can be taught to do a lot of different things, that brings something to the equation, and, and then is you know, somebody that you would want to spend time with, you know, long periods of time in a closed space, and so it's, it, they're sort of, I think, looking at the whole person for for someone to, to hire for the astronaut office. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Be, be a well-rounded person, I guess, would be, you know. I think so, Securing yeah. yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, that might, might be a part of the, uh, the equation there. Well, I think you have to have interests outside just simply work. You have to have hobbies and, and passions that you follow that is outside just work, but I think that applies to everybody's life. Let's move on to the mission itself a little bit. There was... I recall there was, there was some contra controversy about actually performing the last HST survey, the Hubble Space Telescope servicing, whether to go through with it or not. If it was it was a risk, it perhaps it was too dangerous. And I recall reports that scientists, astronomers, and astronauts work, working together had a great deal of influence in changing the mindset or even convincing powers that it was a worthwhile endeavor and, and actually making it happen. Um, can you comment on that? What what was that process, and did you take part in it? Um, I can tell you from my perspective what that was like. I remember actually coming out here to Scripps uh, one weekend for an event and uh, running into a professor who just called me on the carpet and said, why did NASA cancel this Hubble Space Telescope servicing mission? You know, the telescope produces such amazing science. You know, why did NASA cancel that? 
And you know, at the time, what we understood about what we would need to fly safely, we didn't think we could do it. And so basically what that is, after the Columbia accident, we didn't want to launch a space shuttle that couldn't, um, first of all, we, we spent a lot of time reducing the risk of foam coming off and hitting the, the space shuttle. We also spent a lot of time investigating ways to repair damage that might occur if foam did come off and hit the space shuttle. Um, and then space shuttles that go to the International Space Station for their mission, if they had damage they couldn't repair, could stay at the International Space Station until another shuttle could be got ready to come and get them. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope is in a different orbital inclination than the International Space Station, and so we physically can't get there from one orbit to another with the amount of fuel that we have on board. And so in order to, um, to fly safely, we would need to be able to launch a space shuttle um, while you know, right away, basically, in the duration that the original space shuttle had on orbit, which is about maybe, um, depending on power usage, you know, can be a few weeks. Um, and we didn't, at the time, have that capability. Um, when it, our administrator, Mike Griffin, came on board, he wanted the community to look at that again because of the tremendous outpouring, if you will, of, of affection for the telescope and sort of demand that, hey, let's see what we can do. Can we keep this ability to service this telescope while keeping the people that are doing the work safe? And so they had a, a whole big team, um, basically, that looked at whether or not we could get two space shuttles ready at the same time, which is not something that we had really done before. Um, and sure enough, they were able to develop a plan where they could have a, another space shuttle on the launch pad ready to launch within a few days of our launch if we determined that we had damage we couldn't repair. And so they, you know, they went, basically made it a very um, a doable scenario, not just on paper, but there was no kidding, another space shuttle on the second launch pad. Um, they had an entire flight plan and a, uh, a way to come and rendezvous with us, the plan for spacewalks, the plan for us to power down the, the space shuttle that we would be in. It was a completely viable plan to come and get us if we needed that option. Now, fortunately, we didn't need it, and um, we came home safely just fine. So there was a lot of effort that was poured into basically getting this mission back on the books. Now, I'm a fairly naive observer and have just have a cursory understanding of the effort it takes just to put an unmanned vehicle into space and that is a that's a herculean that's a huge effort to put one Hubble servicing mission together and then to have another shuttle standing by ready um, so that really is a success story that's a, that's a story about us as a society people making the decision that yes this is worthwhile let's figure out how to get it done and getting Absolutely. it done. I, I think that, that speaks to NASA all the time. We have a problem. We have, there's a challenge. There's something we, we want to do as a people. I agree. How do we do it? I think that's the essence of NASA is we have these challenges that seem impossible, but when we're given the direction by the country basically to go after something and to do it, you know, that team comes together and it, it literally is thousands of people across the agency that pull together to make something like that happen. It's, it's really impressive to see. That's a good side of that story that um, I think gets glossed over and isn't, isn't told enough. Okay, so on, on to the mission. I, I clearly remember asking you this. Um, it was what you thought of the possibility of sitting atop millions of gallons of volatile propellants. Um, at the point of launch, are you completely absorbed in your operational duties, or does the magnitude of what is going to happen creep in at all? Or are you just... That's busy. a great question. I think um, you have a, a couple of hours where you're actually laying on your back waiting. 
um, it's actually exceptionally uncomfortable. And so that takes up some amount of your brain power for that amount of time where uh, you are waiting. And so there's, there's some amount of you that's thinking, let's just go already. I'm ready. Let's go. Um, there's also the, as you get closer in, when, you're, when your duties require you to start monitoring, you really, your training really does take over. And you are you know, looking at all of the different things that you're supposed to be looking at, um, thinking about the next stage. What am I going to be doing next? And so um, when, the, when the stack lights, you're definitely ready for it to go. Um, you know, I'm sure there's, there's a millisecond of, you know, wow, I'm, this is really happening. But people have asked me, what did it feel like? What did it sound like? And I find that my memory is, I have a very clear visual memory, but I don't remember other things about how it felt, how it sounded, because I was so engaged in looking at displays, thinking about what was happening. We had a master alarm right at liftoff. So we had a piece of equipment that basically had a, had a short. Um, so the, I think the vibration of the launch um, ignition um, caused, that, caused that short to happen. And so instantly at, at ignition, we had this master alarm, which we trained for that. And we've spent hundreds of hours in simulators practicing those kinds of things. It still gets your attention on the real day because you're not expecting it on the real day. Um, so fortunately, we had four pieces of the same type of equipment, um, redundant equipment, basically. So we were still good to go to continue. But there is that part of your brain saying, OK, now what next? What else is going to happen? And sure enough, about a minute and a half into the sequence, we got another alarm that was a, it turned out to be a faulty, a faulty sensor, but it was showing us that we had a, a sick engine, um, which is not good either. And so, so you definitely are, you, you sort of click into your training because you, in this case, we really had to, we had to monitor everything that was going on and we're communicating with the ground and they're giving us, you know, information and telling us that everything is still fine and good to go. Um, but because you have these tasks you have to do, you don't have a lot of leftover to be experiencing it, if you will. I believe it was John Grunsveld told me that he recalls, or maybe it was someone else, that it's like when the solids go, it's like driving down railroad tracks on the ties without the rails. And then when the, they go off and, the, and the, the main engines are going, the liquid-fueled engines, it becomes com- completely smooth. We have, um, yeah, so, so at, when you're riding the solid rocket boosters and the main engines together is about two and a half minutes at the start of the um, uh, ascent period. And then when the solids do drop away, the, it's, it's much less violent. It's a, it's a very smooth ride at that point, And you have this tremendous sensation of speed and acceleration. Um, it's, I, I really can't compare it to anything else because nothing else goes that fast. So, but it, it, it definitely, you, you know that you're going fast and you're getting faster. And then as you reach the end of that eight-minute sequence, um, you are, uh, the, the vehicle is doing what they call 3G throttling, which means maintaining no more than, than 3Gs. And you feel that um, through your chest. It feels like someone's standing on your chest. And so it's, you know, it's an effort to breathe. It's an effort to move your arms. Um, and that lasts for a couple of minutes. So you can get up to 3G, say, on a really great roller coaster, um, but it doesn't last that long. And so that's a, an interesting feeling as well. Um, we, do, we do practice that one time in a centrifuge before we launch, um, but it's a pretty unique feeling. And of course, we don't have that in the simulator when we're practicing normally. And so that's a unique aspect uh, of the launch as well that's, um, that's pretty memorable. But again, hard for me to compare to anything else. It's, it's incomparable. As I, you just mentioned there, you're the fastest human being. <laughs> you know, can't go any faster than that. Um, you, you know, in your role as Capcom, and in, you were Capcom for ISS and International Space Station and other mission support, you experienced launches from just about as close as anyone could actually experience them without actually being aboard the STS. 
Um, however, it's pretty obvious that it's something that perhaps you imagined since childhood um, or dreamed about. Um, does the microgravity come on gradually? Do things start floating around the cabin or? Microgravity comes on instantly, really? right at main engine cutoff. So you, you are, you're on your solid rocket boosters and main engines for about two and a half minutes. And the solids fall back down into the ocean. They're picked up, cleaned up, used again. The mains keep burning um, up to about eight and a half minutes. And then they cut off. And when they cut off, you float out of your seat. Now, you're strapped into your seat, of course, but you immediately float up out of your seat. So you have this you know, instantaneous cutoff of the engines. You're floating out of your seat in a big, big, giant grin on your face. I mean, it's, it all kind of happens at the same time. And it's, it's, you're like, I, I'm here I am, finally. So. That sounds like the most exciting eight <laughs> minutes that anyone could it ever is. experience. It's, it's, Boom, it's a wild ride, but it, it, wow. was, uh, it was great. What, how was that, that adjustment to trans, transforming into this long-duration freefall that you're going to go on for a week or so? Um, it, it takes a little while. You, um, you, uh, you, you have this instantaneous, you know, floating up out of your seat, and then you sort of enjoy it for a second, and then you have this, you know, stretch of work that you have to do. And so I didn't get out of my seat. I'm still in my seat. We have a, a, a procedures book, basically, that we're going through to reconfigure the space shuttle to become an orbiter, basically, from a, from a rocket to an orbiting vehicle. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff we have to do to reconfigure. And so there's a couple people that get out of their seats right away. They're um, taking photographs of the external tank, doing, doing some other things. And myself and the commander and the pilot, we stay strapped in for really a couple of hours while we reconfigure computers and different pieces of equipment. And then once that's done, I could unstrap and actually get out of my seat, get out of my suit, and then, you know, we still have a whole bunch of other work to do. And you really are, you know, if there was any ground to hit, you'd be hitting the ground running, but you, you have you know, eight hours of work to do and about six hours before you're supposed to go to bed. And so um, it's a tremendous a lot of work, not a lot of time to sort of float around and think about where you are. After about four hours, I started to feel nauseous. And um, that remained until I went to bed. And then when I, I woke up the next day, I felt great. So your body is going through that transition. And I think it mainly occurs just like being on a ship. When you're inside, you can't see the horizon. You know, in space, you, you get pretty quickly used to working in unusual attitudes, meaning that if you were on Earth, you'd have your feet on the floor, but you might go heads down and be looking at a piece of equipment. And that can, that can sort of, you know, spin you up a little bit. So for me, it took about, I'd say, half a day to get used to the, to the constantly falling. Um, and then after that, it, it feels very natural. And um, it also takes a little bit of time to get used to um, moving yourself around in microgravity because you think, well, I'll just push off this wall to get over to that piece of equipment. And, you, and then you push too hard and then you, you have to stop yourself again. And so the first couple of days I spent, you know, whacking into things and getting bruised up. And, and then after a while, you realize you just have to, you know, just a tiny fingertip pressure and that'll get you where you need to go. So there's that little bit of adaptation as well. And then when you return, when you land, you, there's a bunch of different things going on with your body. You have uh, lost a whole bunch of fluid while you're in space. You get this fluid shift up into your head and your body starts dumping fluid so that when you land, if you did nothing, you, all the fluid would rush out of your head and, and you could potentially pass out. And so what we do right before we um, deorbit, we drink a whole bunch of fluid to replace some of that. And then we wear a G-suit, basically, just like fighter pilots wear, to push that blood as we're getting back into the feeling of gravity, which does come on gradually as you're landing. Um, it pushes that blood up out of your legs and into your upper, upper extremities in your brain, so you, you stay upright. Um, but it takes about, I would say, two days after landing for me to where I wasn't sort of wobbly on my feet, you know, got my land legs back about two days. That's similar to a being at sea for a long time you come back and 
the earth is still rocking. The earth is still rocking. <laughs> the, the additional fa feature that you have with, um, with coming back from a space flight is you are still dehydrated and you're still having to replenish that. So if you, um, you get very dizzy, say if you go to tie your shoes, um, you can get dizzy or stand up too quickly. That's a problem. And, and then you're still, um, you know, you have that, your brain is sort of readapting to the fact that you're not following in, anymore. So if you like I said, go to bend to tie your shoe, you feel like you're going to pitch all the way out of your chair. So, so that's a little added feature, but, but about two days and you're, and you're back to normal. Previously, one of the experiences you said you, look most, you most look forward to was seeing the Earth from space. How was that? What reflections do you have on it? And did that experience meet? How did that compare to your expectations? One of the things that was interesting about the whole experience is that it was so much like what I expected. Um, in a good, and I mean that in a good way. We, I've grown up in a world where people have always been in space, if you will. So the man landed on the moon before I was ever born for the first time. And so I've seen lots of pictures of the Earth from space, from the space shuttle as well as, of course, a lot farther away. And so it, it does look like what you expect it to look like. And it's actually the, the things that are in motion that I think are most remarkable and most uh, new. Um, I remember the experience of seeing lightning on the earth as we were going overhead and it was breathtaking. It, it was like nothing I've ever seen before. It, basically you have these big storm cells and you know lightning would ignite within the cell and you would see this, I remember it being purple, very vividly purple, this sort of neon purple worm going around inside this cell of a storm and then it looked like it was igniting an adjacent storm and the same thing would happen and you would see this going across the surface of the earth for hundreds of miles and it you know i could look at that for hours except we're traveling too fast to, to gaze at it for that long and so you would see it go by and and it was just beautiful and was you know hard to hard to hard to verbalize but um really breathtaking and i think the thing um the other thing that really struck me was when you see the sunrise and sunset light up this thin little lens of atmosphere that we have around the planet and its relative size to the size of the planet, it's so thin. And you see that and you think, wow, that's, it seems fragile and it seems um, very delicate. And, and it's beautiful, you know, when it's lit up and you can see the clouds, you know, in, the, in that little depth of atmosphere. Um, but you have this remarkable sense of, wow, we really need to take care of that because <laughs> it's taking care of us. You know, we have this beautiful planet and this just very thin layer that's, that's protecting us. That's all there is. That's it. Let's move on to some of your training. You learned to fly a T-34 like your father before you, I understand. Well, we, uh, we got to spend about eight weeks in Pensacola uh, Naval Air Station where they train, um, they train pilots for the Navy and Air Force, and um, they have a program that's uh, for backseaters, basically, in military aircraft, and that's the program that they put us through. So we were allowed about four rides front seat in this T-34, uh, which was great, and then we, we did the bulk of our training, eight flights in the back seat to learn what our role our similar role in the T-38, which is the, which is the jet that we fly at NASA. So although I have a private pilot's license, I'm not a NASA pilot, so I'm, I'm a backseater, basically, a mission specialist, um, and we get, to, we get to ride in the backseat of the T-38. But because it's a training jet, um, it has a full suite of controls, and, and we're allowed to do everything but take off and land. And it's a great training tool for um, basically crew coordination. We've talked a lot about team and how important it is as a team um, to be able to work together and, and accomplish the goals. And so when you're, you know, it's just a small team. It's just the two of you there in the airplane, and then, of course, the team on the ground in the, um, 
aircraft control centers, but um, it's a great environment for learning that as a real skill, not in a simulator. You're really flying this airplane together, responding to any failures together. Um, so it's a similar environment to what we would experience in space. Did you train on parabolic flights? Did you have the we microgravity did. experience before you? Our whole class, um, our, the class of 2000, we were called the Bugs for the Y2K bug. There were 17 of us, and we uh, we went aboard the Vomit Comet, it's called, and uh, basically they fly a parabolic flight path, and as you go over the top of the parabola, you get about 30 seconds of weightlessness. So in order to give you uh, a bigger experience, they actually fly 40 parabolas. And so you get this weightlessness, but then as you pull out of the bottom, so they, then they come back down and they pull out of the dive to go back up again, and then you're pulling a couple Gs. And so you go from weightlessness to multiple Gs to weightlessness multiple Gs, and so that can be hard on your stomach, hence, hence the name Vomit Comet, but, um, but I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. Um, one of our classmates took a video of people just sort of, you know, flying around. Everyone's, you know, doing Superman and different things, and you don't actually see me in the video, but you hear me giggling the whole time somewhere in the background, so it was a, it was a good early taste of what weightlessness would be like. Did it prepare you in any um, sense? Or? I would say it does a little bit in the sense that, you know, the only other experience that any of us have in weightlessness is underwater. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you're underwater, you can move your arms and legs to help you move around in, in space. In air, it doesn't do you any good. You're just flailing. And so learning that, and I think also you, you do start to learn the need to just push off gently. Um, but of course, that was, I think, something like seven years ago. So, so it does, it's a very physical memory, and it does fade you know, when you haven't done it for a while. So I'm sure everybody wants to know, does the vomit comet deserve the title? <laughs> Well, it does. Maybe not you, it does. But. It does deserve the title. I, um, I you know, having gone to sea a, a few times, um, I tend to get. I tend to not get seasick, but every once in a while I would, and I just wasn't sure how I would react, so I had no qualms about taking the, the seasickness medication, basically, is what they give you when you go on the Vomit Comet, and so I felt great, and those folks that I think wanted to tough it out or wanted to see how they would respond maybe didn't feel so great, so uh, my recommendation is to, is to take the seasickness drugs and, and, uh, and enjoy the experience if you ever get a chance to do it. Now, you, you spoke about uh, being weightless and diving, in the, in the scuba diving or working in a marine environment. I think most people probably have at least a cursory knowledge of the, of the huge neutral buoyancy training, the, gi the tank, the gigantic swimming pool, so to speak, in Houston. Um, having been through the training in the tank and conducting a mission, how well did that training translate? Um, was it close to the real thing? Did it really prepare you for the kinds of things you expect? The neutral buoyancy lab is, is a amazing facility. It's about the size of a football field and 40 feet deep and we can put a complete mock-up of the International Space Station, uh, the Space Shuttle, and in our case for our mission, the Hubble Space Telescope, just the bottom half of it actually was all that would fit, but the part that we're actually working on. And so I, I had the experience of having had the basic training, um, not for mission specific, but basic training in the what we call the EMU, the extravehicular mobility unit or the spacesuit. Um, and it's, it's a it's a great training environment. It's very, very challenging. It requires, I think, a lot more physical strength on Earth to move your, the bulk of that suit around underwater than it does when you're actually in space. But what they do is they try to recreate the environment as closely as possible, um, not only with your weightlessness, but with the hardware that you're working on. So that you get, you know, our, I think our guys did maybe 12 runs of each spacewalk that they were going to do in this pool before they did it in space. And so you're really learning every little piece of every little thing that you have to do. Um, and it's tremendous training. It's very, very good training. And, you know, in the water, things aren't going to always go well. They might not be the same things that don't go well in space, but it trains you to 
um, how you approach that problem, how you work together with you know the, the team that you have inside the space shuttle and then the team on the ground. And, and we found that that paid off dividends when we were in space because, of course, we had problems, things not going well right off the bat. So that um, those hundreds of hours of training were tremendously valuable, both to the spacewalkers and for me. I was the robotic arm operator on my flight, and most of the training that I do is in a simulator, kind of a virtual reality thing where I'm flying a, a giant video arm, basically, to do all of my different tasks. But getting the chance to fly a real physical arm in that pool with a real crew member on the end of it, and uh, if not real hardware, then at least physical hardware, it really ups the gain in the sense of I can't run into anything, I can't damage anyone or anything. You know, it's, it, it, it helps with that sense of reality in the training. And so I had a couple hundred hours of, of driving that arm around in the pool before I got into space and that combined with the virtual reality type training I felt extremely comfortable the very first time I moved the arm I had no sense of hesitation or apprehension or anything it was like okay I've done this before I'm gonna do it again and that was that's exactly what you want from your training so it was a great training facility for us and when you the first time you moved the arm out in space it was they have done this it, and, yeah, and it worked and it's, 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 the way it felt. And you have, to, you have to expect that the difference between when you're flying the arm underwater um, and when, when you're flying the arm in space, it's different. You know, the, the, the water itself damps the motion of the arm, but you know that and you prepare for that by doing this more virtual reality type simulation with the video graphics. And so, um, so you combine those two things basically, but it, but it felt very natural, very comfortable moving the arm for the first time in space and, and really throughout the entire length of the mission it, you know I felt really well prepared our instructors um, just they're the best they're the best in the business they're the you know really dedicate hundreds of hours towards making us ready and they do their job really really well interesting that's an interesting that's a whole story in itself and oh, develop, developing yeah. whatever it is needed to make that training and that simulation so close to what it needs to be right and that it's successful. That's they spend a lot of effort doing that, making it everything as realistic as they can based on all the information that they have based on previous flights. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it pays off. Now, do you come back and debrief on the experience so that we do. you build a, the database of Absolutely. information for the trainers? Absolutely. We spend, that's the first thing we do when we get back. Basically, you get about a day or two off to sort of medically recover, and then we spend about two or three weeks doing debriefs. And you do a debrief with every group, so every different system that the space shuttle has, um, and in our case, the Hubble Space Telescope folks, we debrief everything. Um, um, we debrief our training team, and we talk about ways that things worked out really well, ways maybe things could have gone better. Um, and then you also debrief amongst, in, inside the office, you talk to the folks that are getting ready to go on the very next space shuttle mission or the, you know, the couple coming up. Sometimes, you know, people have flown before and they, and they don't need that info, but, you know, the first time flyers or for, for new tasks that you're doing, even though our tasks are not the same from mission to mission, a lot of, you know, how we operate obviously is going to be the same. And so you can pass on, um, you know, personal details of ways to be efficient living in space, but then also, um, you know, operational details of, you know, hey, this particular thing wasn't the way we trained it. So be thinking about that as you do your last couple training sessions. And it's extremely valuable to, to get that information from one another as you're getting ready to fly. Now, your training was very close to reality when you got there moving the arm and operating. Did you experience any, anything unexpected or surprising that it was easy or, or um, yeah, that training was great? Or? Yeah, you know, I, I think, I don't know exactly how to say it, but I think it, it was almost surprising how much everything was as I expected it to be. Um, because we were so well trained, because they had put so much effort into training us, into covering every last little detail, um, I, I 
you know, I, there weren't surprises in that sense, things that didn't work the way we had been told they would work. That, that wasn't the case. There were things that maybe I hadn't thought as much about, you know, some, some of the sort of practical day-to-day living things. You know, we do things like cleaning filters and, you know, vacuuming and, and things like that um, that you maybe don't spend as much time on that were, um, you know, you just basically learn them while you're doing them. And they're not that complicated, so, so that's okay. Uh, we, of course, had things happen um, during the spacewalks in particular that we weren't expecting, um, but we, we, you know, we had solutions for them ultimately. And so the training even prepares you kind of to deal, to deal with the unexpected. So, and, and the ground teams are always there. Mission Control Center is always there for you. And if they don't have the answer in the room, you know, they've got somebody in a back room somewhere that if they don't have the answer, they're going to find the answer for you. So you really, you have seven souls in space, but you have thousands on the ground that are, that are there to help you when, when things maybe do surprise you. Now, one of those things I understand was a tough bolt. We had a couple of bolts give us some, give us some heartache, yeah. The very first task of the very first EVA um, was for Drew Feustel and John Grunsfeld, who were the spacewalkers that day, were going to remove and replace basically the last functioning scientific instrument on the telescope. No pressure. <laughs> so they, um, they had to remove this wide-field planetary camera 2 and, and install the new wide-field camera 3. And... Um, it just wasn't, you know, it was, it was, it's a pretty straightforward task. And um, the very first thing, this bolt that they have to release in order to pull the old camera out was just in there and wasn't, wasn't coming out. And I, I think it was probably set at a higher torque value um, or, you know, or over time it just got more stuck in there. And so what they had to do basically when, when they're going to, to release bolts, they have a torque limiter so they can't accidentally break the bolt. And what they ultimately had to do was, was release that bolt without the torque limiter. So there was a lot of tension on the ground about, you know, it, this is designed to shear. And, and so if it does, that camera's staying in there. We're never getting, uh, we're never getting the, the new, this new instrument in there. And so there was a lot of tension on the ground um, as they were working out how exactly to do that. But um, Drew Feustel, who was the, the spacewalker who was out there, he, he is just, you know, calm, you know, just, he's like Iceman, you know, he just, he, um, if, you, if you have to have something like that happen, he's the guy that you want out there. He's, you know, he's a car guy, really good with, with tools and had a really good sense for, because he practiced so much how it should feel, how it should react, um, he, he was really great at, at making it work, you know, in kind of an off-nominal situation. So um, it was, uh, you know, big sigh, I think, inside the space shuttle and, and a bigger sigh on the ground when, uh, when he got that bolt to release. And then the rest of the, the, rest of the event just went like, like we had planned, just like clockwork. So... Um, but that was, you know, sort of that, that stumbling block right out of the gate, if you will, was, uh, was you know, we weren't expecting that. So um, I think that one of the spacewalks that we really expected to have trouble with, which was the third one, went, you know, like a charm. No, no pitfalls at all. So you just, you don't know what you're going to get. Um, and the training really helps you flex and adapt to whatever is thrown your way. Now, another one was removing a circuit board, which wasn't designed to be replaced, actually, and taking right. out numerous tiny screws which <laughs> you don't want to lose track of. <laughs> right, exactly. The, um, there was actually two uh, repairs, the advanced camera for surveys and a spectrograph called STIS that um, were in a similar situation basically and um, to re- the, the boxes, the scientific instruments are designed to be pulled out as a single unit and replaced as a single unit and there these ones are about the size say of a telephone booth and based on when they failed um, we didn't have the the time or the resources to build a whole new box and so a repair was developed initially for the spectrograph stis to pull off a panel on this 
on this computer. And the panel had something like 117 non-captive torque set, tiny, tiny little screws. And, and like you said, it, you even lose one of those inside there, lose track of it, you're going to have, you know, uh, all of your nebulas are going to look very interesting sort of from here on out. And so um, you don't want that to happen. And so really it, it was an ingenious solution on the part of the engineers uh, from Goddard Space Flight Center developed uh, a piece of equipment that they called a fastener capture plate. And basically it was a, a, I heard somebody say it looks like a toddler's activity board. It's this brightly colored board that fits over the plate on the computer that has to come out with slots in it uh, over where the screw heads would be. So you can put a bit through these slots and get a hold of the, the screw head, back the screw out, which then becomes captive between this fastener capture plate and the, um, the plate on the computer in place. And so um, that was uh, the plan, and um, there was a lot of um, uh, you know, thought put into you know how to you don't want to strip a, strip a screw head because if you strip even one you know that and you can't get the whole plate off and so they really put a lot of detailed thought into this fastener capture plate and and really the whole task but the one thing that had to be done before that capture plate could go in place on the computer was a handrail had to be removed from the outside of this box in order for this plate to fit on there and. Um, the handrail had full-size, what we call EVA bolts, so bolts that were used to turning um, with somebody in a spacesuit. And um, so Mike Massimino was the person, the spacewalker performing that task, and he went to back those bolts out, and uh, one of them wouldn't come out. And so here's this handrail, and again, it's sort of the very beginning of the task, and the rest of the task we expect to be much harder than removing this handrail, and it's this darn handrail that, that won't come off. And so um, the, the team on the ground had a mock-up, basically, of this same piece of equipment, and, um, and you know, did some head-scratching and thinking about it, and basically they, they determined that, we could, that Mike could rip that handrail right off, just bodily pull that sucker off in order to, to make that plate accessible. And uh, they practiced it on the ground, figured out how much force it would require, and they said, okay, we think it's going to be this much force, and, and you, know, you have a go to try it. And uh, so you know, we have a great video of Mike you know, grabbing hold of the top of this handrail and kind of giving it a one, two, and then just yanking that thing right off. And he sounds very calm and collected and, you know, um, during the whole process, but you, know, you talked to him about it afterwards, and he was thinking, you know, good Lord, if we don't get this done, you know, this whole task is, is out the window. And so he was very grateful for that solution, and he was thinking, well, you know, this brute forth method, I can do this for sure. So uh, we were all pretty pleased uh, when, when that came off, and he could continue with the rest of the... And it, he was on the end of the arm at that He point? wasn't, actually. Oh. Uh, we, we have one guy on the end of the arm, and then uh, Mike was on a, uh, what we call a foot plate inside the telescope, basically. We had tried that task with somebody on the end of the arm, but you get the arm so close to the lip of the telescope and you don't have a good view of that, that um, it, it made us all pretty uncomfortable. So when we figured out we could fit a, a footplate inside the telescope and he could be stationary there, that made more sense. And then we put the other guy on the arm to run around the payload bay to pick up different pieces of equipment for Mike. So it kind of was used as a, as a tool bench, basically, during that particular EVA. So That's something else, being... Your job was to break the Hubble Space Telescope. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> fix. Well, that's a, that's what we say. You know, we we didn't break it in, unless they told us to. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. First, you, you touched on something about the ground support you have, and it's it's not just the seven souls up there, but the seven thousand behind them figuring out how to work this one bolt, and many hundreds, even thousands of people have spent the larger portion of their lives connected somehow to the Hubble Space Telescope, either with missions or with science programs or, or, or reducing data or, or in some way. Um, and certainly a great deal of all of us here on Earth, all of humanity, have somehow been touched by results from the Hubble Space Telescope. And I understand that 
you were the last person to have actual direct physical influence on the Hubble Space Telescope. Um, does that have any special meaning or did that leave you with a special feeling at all? That's actually a really good way to put it because uh, we, we have sort of a running joke with our crew, you know, who was the last person to touch the telescope? Um, and so we joke about who that was. Now, of course, I'd, I'd never actually touched it myself. Um, and the guys, you know, out there with their glove hands were the ones really touching it. But, um, but I was the last person to sort of cause it to move, if you will, by picking it up with the robotic arm and, and, um, and then backing away from it. And, uh, and then the shuttle flies away from the telescope. And I think that all of us, you know, we have some great, pictures of all of us sort of crowded around the overhead window getting one last look at the telescope, being that this was the, the last servicing mission, last planned servicing mission with people to the telescope. But I don't think any of us felt sadness. I think we felt excitement because it's a whole new telescope, basically. It has, um, for the first time ever, a completely working complement of scientific instruments. And already the data that's coming back is you know, better than they expected it to be. And one of the neat things I remember being told about the telescope by some of the project scientists that use its data was that the telescope was designed to answer some specific questions. But they have a list of what they call Hubble's top 10 discoveries. And five of those are answers to questions that were being asked with the telescope. But the other five are questions we didn't even know to ask that the telescope is providing answers for. So to me, it's very exciting to think about the telescope up there just sort of stretching its wings now after the servicing mission and, and figuring out what it's capable of, of doing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be amazing us for years to come, and it, it feels really great to have been a, even just a tiny little part of that process, um, to contribute something like that to sort of our body of scientific knowledge. It's not something I would have ever done on my own if I wasn't a part of this project. So it, it feels really good and not, not sad at all. I think you um, understate that just a little bit too much, a, a tiny part, but it a critical keystone at a critical point. If people weren't there to do that, they wouldn't. Well, they had the they world. had the foresight to plan to make that telescope serviceable by people. Um, if they hadn't done it, you know, the telescope is already 19 years old, and I don't know anybody whose car is 19 years old without having been into the shop a whole lot. And so, um, having that ability to service the telescope um, is is the reason we have the information that we have. So um, it's, been a, it's been a tremendous asset and um, you know, I'm just, like I said, really grateful to have been, been a part of it. Was there anything surprising or unexpected about, you said, oh, cleaning filters and vacuuming. Was <laughs> it's not very a exciting. Little, a little unexpected though, but um, is there anything unexpected or surprising? It could be a, about the life aboard the, the, the STS. I mean, it could be an experience or a feeling or a reflection or... Unexpected or surprising. You know, I, you think by the, I, I do get asked that question, and I, I don't have a good answer for it because, like I say, it was, you know, we, we trained so, so much, every little aspect, um, but, I, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I, I, I think really the, the feeling that I had looking out the window at the earth, watching the earth go by, looking at the stars, um, seeing the lightning that we talked about, you can't really... I can't say that any of that was expected, um, other than the fact I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to spend some time looking out the window, but, but experiencing it is obviously pretty unique, and it's hard to express how that makes you feel, um, but it's a, it's a wonderful experience that you know, I'll sort of have forever, those memories. I 
spoken with and worked with John Grunsfeld in the past. And how, how is it working with John? He's been up there before. He'd actually serviced the Hubble Space Telescope before. He, John has flown in space five times, and this was his third visit to the Hubble Space Telescope. And he, he knows so much about that telescope. It is amazing. He's like an encyclopedia. And not just the level of knowledge of the operator that's having to do the spacewalks, but of course, you know, he's an astronomer. And so he has a, a very unique bond with the telescope. And um, John was great to fly in space with. He, um, he was this fount of knowledge, but in, in a very good sense, you know, allowing you to experience something and then sharing that with you, sharing his experiences with you, you know, providing advice if you needed it. Um, John was a lot of fun to be in space with and um, really grateful for that experience. Really, the whole crew, I mean, we, you know, sometimes I feel like, well, we had the best crew ever. Nobody else had this much fun. I'm sure everybody feels that way, but I can't imagine that they had as much fun together as we had. Um, I feel very grateful to have gotten to go with those specific people that I got to go with and to, you know, the, the good time that we had was, was pretty. Well, that was something else. John, it's like, going to visit an old friend. <laughs> yeah, for John, absolutely. Yeah. Going yeah. to visit the telescope is, is definitely going to visit an old friend. And he, uh, you know, we have a neat sequence of him where he's sort of patting the telescope goodbye one last time. And, and then he, you know, hops on the arm and we fly him back to the airlock. So, you know, it's a pretty neat moment for him. But, but again, I don't think he would say he felt sad knowing that it was the last time he would see it. I think he's, you know, he's thrilled and he's actually got some, some t telescope time booked. He got, he, um, you know, it's hard. It's a pretty competitive thing to, to get that awarded to you. So he's looking forward to to testing out the telescope. He had a personal stake in there. He wanted, yeah, he's yeah. looking forward to get back and, Absolutely. and start working on it. There's a great deal of discussion discussion on the future of U.S. space exploration. Uh, the moon, Mars, unmanned exploration, the International Space Station, Earth observation, they're all in the mix and in a way, unfortunately, competing for whatever reason. Now, you have an experience that is at the interface of both manned, unmanned, and robotic. You, you, you serviced a robotic telescope from a reusable launch vehicle. Um, what is your opinion on a course for the future of space exploration and all those things in the mix? I think the, the future of space exploration will encompass all of those ingredients that you mentioned. We we were able to do what we did to service this telescope um, because we can send people into space. We could not have done what we did, the level of detailed repairs that we did robotically. We don't have the ability to do that at this point. Um, but we also, you know, the telescope is up there 24-7, 365 days a year, making its continuous observations, and people can't do that on their own either. And so it's the combination, basically, of, of people and hardware um, that are going to be continuing to make these discoveries about the universe. And I think we'll see that when we send people back to the moon um, for longer duration stays than we have in the past, when we push out to Mars, we are going to see that same combination of of humans and hardware working together to accomplish the things that we want to do. I don't think it's going to be one or the other. I think it's going to be that team, again, that we talked about before, sort of humans and robo robotics together um, pushing the boundaries. I clearly remember you commenting that one of your greatest hopes for space exploration, one of the reasons we do this is, is it's human nature. And it keeps, in a way, it keeps human nature and the drive to explore vital. Um, in your opinion, how does this space program continue to, continue to do that, and, and how best can it do that in the future? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I think that um, certainly space exploration provides that for humanity in the way that 
ocean exploration has in the past and really continues to do. But it's that pushing beyond the, the boundary, the frontier of the known into the unknown that people have always been compelled to do. Um, that frontier for us now is space, is low Earth orbit, really, because we've, we've pushed out to low Earth orbit. We've been to the moon, but we didn't stay there. Um, and so learning how to push beyond that boundary again is, is where we're going to be focusing our attention, I think, in the near term. I think, um, you know, I hope that we'll see people on Mars in my lifetime. Um, that would be tremendous. I'd love to, to meet with school children and say, okay, who wants to go to Mars? You know, I want to hear about it when you get back because I'm, I'm going to be too old. We're not going to get there in time for me to go. But I think that, um, that we will always have that drive as people. We will always have that drive, that curiosity that makes us want to explore the universe around us. Now, we get all kinds of benefits from doing that as a nation and, and the world, really, in advances in technology. And you can talk a lot about spinoffs. Um, but the real reason that we do it is because we have this, this natural drive as human beings to push the boundaries of what we know, to explore the unknown, and to answer the fundamental questions um, about why we're here, you know, how was the universe made, all of those kinds of things. And I, I don't think we're going to stop asking those questions. You mentioned something there. I'd like to probe your thoughts a, a little bit more about, um, about pushing, pushing in, into the unknown. I mean, um, when Shockley explored the defects in silicon and came up with the transistor, or when John von Neumann was, built ENIAC, he had, they had no idea that you have an iPhone now or that transistors became, or when the first one, Tiros, went up and started Earth observation, we had no idea what those, the ramifications of those things would be. Now that we're thinking, we're hearing things like cloud computing and, and what is it, um, quantum computing, and they are going to bring things that we can't, can't imagine. And I guess the point is that often NASA and spatial exploration is kind of held to task for giving us some kind of Benefit, some kind of result, some kind of dollar for dollar right. uh, uh, result for it. Um, can you comment on NASA and exploration um, as a basic basic research enterprise and what what that means for the future? I think that um, you know our previous NASA administrator, Mr. Griffin, gave a great speech one time where he talked about. Um, the real reasons and the acceptable reasons that we do space exploration. And he touched on all of those things, the acceptable reasons like, you know, the economic benefit to the country, the national security benefit to the country when we remain at the technological forefront, um, you know, the, the research benefit to the country by, by say, spinoffs that are... Someone told me recently that a... Um, that the pumps, some of the pumps developed for the shuttle's main engines were, are precursors to, to pumps that pe keep people's heart beating. Those kinds of things, people love to hear those kinds of very practical spin-offs. But again, I think the, um, that he goes on to discuss the real reasons that we do it, which have more to do with what we were talking about before, um, the desire to explore, the desire to push beyond the, the boundaries of things that we know the desire to monument build and leave something, leave kind of our mark basically for, for future generations. And so for me personally, I don't have a specific, a specific research goal like wouldn't it be neat if we found the answer to this fundamental question. Um, for me, it's more about the exploration, that drive, that drive to explore, um, that human curiosity about the universe around us. Last two questions. Are you preparing for a future mission? Are you in training for uh, 
maybe going to ISS as you had hoped you would do in the future? Um, right now I am working on supporting other crews that are flying in space. I'll be working as Capcom again in Mission Control Center. I'll be working the next space shuttle launch, which is in just a couple of weeks. And I, I hope to prepare for a future space station mission that would be a six-month duration. And um, that'll be probably a couple years in the future for me. In the meantime, I'm working um, as our office point of contact for NASA is, is currently contracting with um, commercial companies to provide cargo delivery capability to the International Space Station. So this is a new thing for us that we'll have a couple of American companies uh, um, sending cargo, unmanned cargo ships to the space station. And so uh, we're learning a lot about how that is going to work. And that's been a really exciting thing for me to focus on. So that's what I'm doing right now. Well, talk about pushing the frontiers, <laughs> cargo deliveries to space. Yeah, that's I mean, it, I think new, that's. I think it's one. so exciting to have. You know, the more brain power we get solving problems of how to keep people living in space, you know, I think that's great. I think it's 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 going to be an exciting time. Looking forward, you have achieved what few humans ever will. And what do you think such an experience that you had prepares you for in the future? You know, it's hard to know what's going to be next. I spent so many years trying to get here to do this one thing um, and it feels great it's very satisfying to have gotten to do it I don't know what's next um, if I was if I was gonna stay you know stay in space exploration you know I'd love to go to the moon um, you know if we if we get people there in my sort of career lifetime I'd love to do that um, if I was to change completely and pick something totally different and new to to challenge myself with I think the the other big important problem um, facing us obviously is um, alternative energy sources that type of thing I think is a very interesting challenging question for our society and that I think could absorb easily absorb the the rest of my life you know a problem like that so that would be an interesting new thing to pursue but but I you know I know nothing about it at this point other than you know the average layperson so um, in terms of um, sort of goals that are worth pursuing those are the, those are right up there. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us again. And I do hope that in a couple of years, after you come back from the International Space Station, hopefully that will happen, that we can meet again and you can right. fill us in on all your experiences Great. there and perhaps on the Colbert as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you Thanks again. very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.